The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Dr. Atiana Mboya Samandari here on the show as my guest. Dr. Samandari, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Dr. Samandari is an adjunct professor at Emory University School of Law. She recently came back from Kenya, where she was at the University of Nairobi as the VHC's very first Fulbright Scholar. Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be back. I hope you had a safe journey. Um, and how was your time in Kenya? My time in Kenya was uh, very interesting and different because um, the Fulbright experience is really an opportunity to get to interact in person with your host institution, your host colleagues, and the host students, um, which in my case, like you mentioned, is the University of Nairobi's Faculty of Law. But because of the COVID pandemic, um, University of Nairobi was not meeting in person. So so this was a Fulbright that actually ended up being all virtual. So I taught um, my international environmental law course virtually and also interacted with faculty at a virtual level. So that was very different. I, when I was a student in Kenya many, many years ago, I actually had a Fulbright professor. And so I had in my mind a vision of what a Fulbright is like. You know, the professors in class, you talk to them, you go to their office, um, you know, you compare notes about, um, you know, the topic based on US law and Kenyan laws. And so, you know, the parts that were missing this time was really that in-person sort of going to the office, hosting students in my office and chatting with them about any questions or interests they may have had about my experience, um, both in the US and in Kenya. Then there was also the research component of my fellowship, um, where I was interviewing, you know, just ordinary um, Kenyans living in high density neighborhoods in Nairobi and medium density neighborhoods about water access. Now that part went a little bit better because I was actually able to to meet people outdoors and chat with them and find out, you know, what are the water issues they're facing? What are some of the things that come up with water access? Is it expensive to actually be um, buying water when you live in some of these neighborhoods? So so that part of it was in person, which which was good. Did you have any prior connections or experience with the University of Nairobi Faculty of Law? Well, the University of Faculty of Law is actually my alma mater. That's where I did my first law degree um, before emigrating to the US. So in a, in a sense, it was like a homecoming, which was which is great. Um, many of the faculty there now, um, some of us were actually students together. Um, so in that respect, it was, it was unusual and very heartwarming. And even though we couldn't meet in person, our virtual conversations, I think, were a lot more, if you like, connected because we knew each other before as students and have, you know, collaborated previously as well in person. How did you feel that COVID-19 and those restrictions really impacted 
your ability to teach students and to interact with faculty and the academic side of things there? Yeah, the ability to teach students was, I think, my biggest um, concern because internet connectivity in Kenya isn't as reliable as it is in the US. And so, you know, the students would come online, but because they had low bandwidth, most of them had their cameras off. So oftentimes I was teaching a class to, you know, all these different names, um, you know, certainly when they would come back from their little online group discussions, you know, I tried to make it as interactive as I could. So we had lots of, you know, sort of smaller Zoom breakouts where they'd have a discussion on a topic and then come back and report on it. And at those times I would get to see their faces, but like I say, they, they had a real issue with, with them. Um, sort of bandwidth and the cost for them of taking an online class. So, so in some ways that too was a limitation and, I, and created a certain distance between the students and myself, which, um, which was unfortunate and certainly not, um, you know, sort of the, the, the archetypal Fulbright experience. Nonetheless, um, being familiar with the culture already, I felt in some ways an instant connection with the students too. And also since they were studying in my alma mater, I could relate to you know, their experience as students. So there was that dimension is to it as well, which I think um, sort of evened out the virtual nature of our meeting. Can you tell me a little more about your research project there? So when you're a Fulbright scholar, it means that you're going and you're doing a specific research project, right? Well, actually, for, for my program, the, the main purpose of my coming is to teach. You know, the U.S. Um, scholar program is, was to teach at University of Nairobi. But a small component of it, of course, is, you know, like any other faculty, you've got areas of interest. So I had this research component where I was looking at um, the legal framework of um, gender differentiated access to water comparing high density neighborhoods, well, one high density neighborhood and one medium density neighborhood in Nairobi. And why is that important? It's important because in the high density neighborhoods in Nairobi, um, oftentimes the people going to buy water from different water points are women and girls. And there's been reports and records of them, you know, either being assaulted on their way there or on their way back. Um, and, if, and not just physical assault, but also suffering like sexual harassment and sexual assault. So this was something I wanted to to, to learn more about and, um, you know, what these experiences were like in terms of, you know, going to a water point and supplying water for your family every day or, you know, every week, however many times in a week you have to go to this water point and what were the gender differentiated impacts of, of this vital role? Because um, for the higher density neighborhoods, most of them don't have running indoor water at home. So you actually go to a water point somewhere in the neighborhood to buy the water. For medium density neighborhoods, most of them have taps at home. The interesting thing is that, unfortunately, Nairobi also suffers from a lot of water shortages. But if you lived in a medium density neighborhood, you didn't necessarily have to go out with your big jerry can looking for water as they have to do in um, the high density neighborhoods. Basically, what you would do is arrange for someone that has a big water truck to come to your home and fill up your water tank. So, so I realized that in, in the medium density neighborhoods, the water would be brought to them. Obviously, there's a cost associated with that as well, but there wasn't that um, physical danger for trying to access it.
Were there any barriers to your research or any insights that you gained that you didn't expect? Well, one of the things I found was actually water is cheap. <laughs> okay, I was actually surprised. Um, you know, so like a, a big 20 gallon jerry can of water. As I, I was talking to, you know, some women that have, you know, sort of this informal roadside cafe and they have all these jerry cans. So, you know, I would actually stop by and sort of buy my lunch at their informal cafe periodically. And I started chatting with them and I'm like, you know, so how much does it cost for you to, you know, be buying this water every day? Because I would see this lady come on this, the back of a motorbike and with her jerry can and bring it. And she said, oh, this just costs um, 10 shillings. 10 shillings is like, um, is like one cent. So I realized that um, actually the water was cheap. So, so the issue wasn't so much affordability of water, but just the logistics of getting to the water point and bringing it back to where you need, you need it, whether it's at home or in your small business. And of course, for, for women like these that have sort of these informal restaurants on the roadside, um, you know, they actually make really good money um, by Kenyan standards because they're in an area where there's a lot of construction. So at lunchtime, all the construction workers are coming there for lunch, etc. And I could see that, you know, this woman's business was booming. And so she was able to afford, um, you know, a motorbike ride to go get her water and bring it back however many times she needed to. And so for her, again, there wasn't, um, sort of that physical danger to accessing water for her business. But for, um, you know, just sort of household water um, residents and who from the family is going to get that water, that was, that was really the area where I found that um, there's, um, there's a danger for, for women and girls. So how does that research tie into the vulnerability theory project? One of the things I was looking at was um, also, you know, sort of what are the, the sort of the male dimensions of this dynamic of women and girls being the primary, um, you know, if you like water accesses for the family. And, and in a few, inevitably in a few families, we did have actually sort of young men, um, you know, older boys also carrying out that same function. Um, the interesting thing that I saw there was that for them, they would, either take a motorbike or something. There was, there was something that, that they accessed in that way for them to, to get the water. You know, when they, had, when they had to walk, they'd actually maybe find a bicycle or something and, and put the jerry can on the bike and bike to the water point. While I saw very, very few, I, maybe two or three at the most in the time I was doing this research of, of young women that were biking too. So I think this idea of, also the transportation factor is, is gendered. We see a lot more men and boys in Kenya on, you know, sort of riding bicycles or, or, um, or, or, or riding motorcycles, while the women are the ones who might maybe take a ride on the back of a motorcycle if it's far enough, like the business ladies I was telling you about. And so, so that gender um, dynamic was interesting for me to see that, um, in terms of you know sort of human vulnerability, it seemed like the male family members had, in some ways, more secure transportation to the water points as well. Okay, which mitigated you know any potential vulnerability they may have faced for say assault if someone wanted to assault them over water. But I realized that these assaults don't happen because someone is trying to get the water. The water is actually if you like, cheap enough for those that need it to afford it. And so there's another dynamic at play here, which is 
boils down to really just the physical um, differences in strength between the male and female, um, biological differences that then put um, you know women and girls at, um, at, a, at, at a less resilient place when they're carrying out this function. What will you do with the results of your research there? Well, I'm actually in the final stages of uh, editing the paper that I'm writing around this. And, uh, you know, I'll put it out there for publication and uh, hopefully it'll be, you know, offer some insights to people working in the field of water and, and especially comparative water law. And do you expect that you'll make any policy recommendations? Is that well, something this... I'm allowed to ask before your paper is published? <laughs> Well, um, I, I think it's for policymakers to pick up these, you know, the, the papers and take what the knowledge is in there and, and have it influence their policy. But the interesting thing about this research, actually, it feeds into um, a larger collaboration that I already have with the University of Nairobi Faculty of Law, where we were looking at, um, um, you know, the, wars around, the laws around water, water cooperation and water access in Kenya generally. This is a project that we had started on two years ago. But that, um, that project is just really looking at the big framework of water law in, the, in Kenya, which uh, is also, um, it's become, it's become not a unitary water, um, water law framework, which is what Kenya had before, but with the new constitution in Kenya, 2010 constitution, Kenya became decentralized. And so different counties, it became almost like a federal model. So different counties are actually drawing up different water laws for their particular counties. So the counties in Kenya are sort of the equivalent of states in the US. Um, so, so that larger project is really just looking at sort of Kenya's transition from one water law to a federal water law program. And so this research of mine feeds into it by adding, you know, sort of a gender component and looking at it through um, the lived experiences of women and men on the ground in, in one section of the country. Yeah. That's quite a contribution. Well, this, and this is, just, you know, it's really such a small sample size, but hopefully it will, it'll, it'll um, help other researchers and uh, people in Kenya or even overseas that may be interested in looking at those impacts in the different counties in Kenya as well, because the counties are also, you know, quite diverse. Some are more rural, some are more urban. And of course, I was just looking at a small slice of an urban county. So you did hold a VHC University of Nairobi Faculty of Law collaborative event. And I, I know you had informal and formal discussions outside of that with your colleagues as well in, mm -hmm. um, at the University of Nairobi. How was vulnerability theory received there? And do you have any plans to do anything further with vulnerability theory there or with the University of Nairobi specifically? There's been a lot of interest in vulnerability theory here. And I think the interest has really come from um, the faculty wanting one to understand what exactly is vulnerability theory and how does it, you know, the, the idea of human vulnerability differ from the idea of human rights and law. So our discussions have really been around that. And the webinar we had um, was really a good opportunity to, to look at um, the expansive approach to to human rights that the African um, Commission on Human and People's Rights has taken in, in different cases. And I was discussing in my presentation, I was discussing um, an old case that looked at um, the Andorois people in Kenya and how they were displaced 
by the state um, and uh, in order to make way for um, ruby mining and uh, a tourist resort. And so when they took their case to the African tribunal, the expansive reading of human rights that we find in the African Charter of Human Rights um, really resulted in them regaining access to their land and the state finding a way to actually accommodate them and include them in these development initiatives that it was proposing for that area. So, so in the context of that sort of broadened understanding of human rights, which is quite different from the typical human rights discourse that we find in, um, in say, um, in, in, in uh, Europe or, or in, and now emerging in, in the US where it's more individual based. This is looking at rights also on a community level. And, uh, and that case was to me an example where we can look at sort of legal reasoning that goes beyond individual rights and individual entitlements to community rights and community duties that I think a vulnerability approach to law embraces. And, and so the faculty that took part in it, actually, they really appreciated having this specific example to talk about. And, and they also really, of course, appreciated having Professor Feynman there, um, you know, to explain, um, you know, the basics of vulnerability theory as well. So I would say there's, there's definitely a lot of interest and um, we've had, you know, some discussions around continuing a collaboration between, you know, Emory Vulnerability Program and setting up a vulnerability, um, if you like, a, a vulnerability desk at the University of Nairobi Faculty of Law. So there's definitely interest there and um, we'll be following up on that. We don't have a lot of time left, but I do wanna just ask you a little bit about what courses you'll be teaching when you come back to Emory and how your experience with online teaching in Kenya will influence how you teach your, sem your seminars at Emory if it will at all? Uh, well, I'll be teaching international environmental law in the fall, and I'll also be teaching law, sustainability, and development. And I love both those courses. So do um, I. <laughs> so in terms of how my experience in Kenya may influence that, um, I think I'll, I'll definitely have maybe a few more examples from Africa, especially when I'm looking at the water law component of a class of our international environmental law, because I had some really rich discussions around the River Nile in the class I was teaching here. Um, and of course, you know, the, the longest river in the world, and it's, it's a good, it was a good example to use in the courses here. So I think one of the things I'll bring back is, you know, a specific African example to share with my students in, in the US. Um, in terms of teaching online, well, we're going to be teaching in person in the fall, so there won't be too much online exchange with the students unless, uh, you know, circumstances change. But uh, just knowing that I've been able to teach, you know, the International Environmental Law course completely online and it was engaging and I could tell from the students' exams that they understood and absorbed the material, um, you know, that in a sense gives me also the confidence that if, if we happen for some reason to have to transition to online, then it, it'll be fine. And I know, you know, we, we can do that successfully. But, um, but of course, we're all looking forward to an in-person successful fall semester here at Emory. Uh, what skills or insights can students expect to gain in both of the classes that you're teaching this fall? 
I think some of the main um, insights that I'd like to communicate to my students in both, both courses is the importance of looking at environmental issues and also looking at um, development and sustainability issues, not just from the narrow lens of, well, you know, I'm doing my little part and recycling, you know, my things at home, which is great, and we should all be doing that, but to actually take a global view, you know, step back and look at you know, the issues facing us around the environment, the issues facing us around global inequality with development and see, you know, what does this mean for us as a world community of human beings that share a finite planet, okay? You know, none of us are about to move from this planet to Mars or somewhere else. We're all in this together. And if there's one thing we've learned, certainly from climate change, is that we, we really are all in this together, okay? That universal vulnerability to climate change is there. Universal vulnerability to economic inequality, okay, is also there, which is why you find that, sort of this growing inequality, I think to me is, is really, a, um, it's really evidence of, of that vulnerability where the haves want to accumulate even more because they can see just how difficult a life it is when you don't have enough. And so, you know, that, that fear of not getting to that place, unfortunately, takes us to a selfish place where we're trying to accumulate more rather than finding out how we can actually make sure that everyone's basic needs are met. And then from there, obviously, you know, we have different talents, we have different aspirations, we have different work ethics, there'll be differentiation there. But in terms of basic needs, um, there shouldn't be any differentiation in access to that. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Either about well, your experience I'm, I'm excited or... to be back. I'm excited to be back at Emory, you know, and uh, hopefully this pandemic will soon be behind us. And uh, and I know there's definitely, you know, we're certainly in the going to be talking about sort of the pre-pandemic days and the post-pandemic days wherever we are in the world. Again, the pandemic itself has also told us really evidence of this concept of universal vulnerability. There's no corner of society that hasn't been touched by the pandemic. And, and the changes that we're seeing, the changes that we've seen as a result of the pandemic, including things like going online for learning, which has in many ways really opened up access to information and platforms to many people around the world who before didn't have them, um, you know, I think the post-pandemic world will never go back to the pre-pandemic world, okay? I think it'll be a post-pandemic world that hopefully takes the good things that we developed from the pandemic, especially things like um, sort of making sure that there's broad access to connectivity, which in many ways has democratized meetings and learning in so many ways. And, uh, and, and then keep, keep, you know, sort of forging ahead with them, the challenges that the pandemic has brought as well and overcoming them. But it's, it's, it's an exciting moment, I think, because we're, I think we're really at the cusp where we're about to say we've, we've beat the virus if enough of us can get vaccinated so we don't have new mutations that then <laughs> force us to go back into lockdown. I do want to ask you one last question. I know we're running close to our time. Have you felt tired or overwhelmed or just stressed out because of the pandemic? And if so, what skills or specific activities or do you, any tips or insights that you've had? What 
what have you, what tools have you used to help you continue to get through all of this? Because I mean, you've, you know, you're living in the world as well, just like everybody else. And you've been working this whole time. You've been doing research, you've been hosting events and you've been doing, you know, you've been teaching students as well this whole time. So what's helped you get through it? And do you have any advice or tips for other folks, students or um, academics and faculty who are in the same position as you? Yeah, for me, I think one of the most difficult things about the pandemic, despite all the things you're saying that I kept doing, was really the isolation. You know, I was doing those things, but I was doing them on my own. You know, I couldn't meet faculty face to face. I couldn't meet students face to face. And, you know, that energy you get from just meeting people in person and, you know, my research mitigated that to some degree when I would go out into the neighborhoods and talk to people. But that was really difficult for me. Um, and, uh, and, and, so, and, and for that reason, I'm just really glad that I had that research component because I'm not sure how, how I'd have been able to weather that without being able to just talk to humans on a regular basis. You know, I'd go out at least once a week, um, you know, have lunch at these uh, you know, this woman's restaurant and talk to women and girls and talk to some of the men there. And that in-person contact made a huge difference. And, uh, and so that's one of the reasons why, you know, sort of being back in Atlanta and having, you know, the people around me vaccinated and knowing that, you know, I can actually get together with, you know, my neighbors and, and have in-person contact again is, is really such a big relief. And, uh, Yes, it's been, it's been such, it's a really was a tough, in, in that way, it was a tough old ride for me that um, I didn't have as much in-person contact with, with the Kenyans and, and just anyone else as I would have. And especially because Kenya has been under lockdown and the vaccination rates uh, are very, very low here instead. So I would say the way to do it, um, you know, is to stay connected, even if it's virtual, because to be honest, each time, you know, when I had my class, it made a difference, you know, just seeing the students however briefly but having those discussions with them you know when class ended you could I, I definitely felt a sense of rejuvenation a sense of connection with people um, and also with the faculty when we would talk online and when we had our webinar it was all very rejuvenating to just interact with other people even though it was through a screen um, but I have to say that you know, to the extent that we can meet in person again, I don't think any of us will ever take that for granted again. At least I know I won't, because it's something I have definitely missed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, your time and taking this opportunity to chat with me about your experience. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. And I hope your pandemic experience was a good one too. And looking forward to meeting in person later in the semester when that becomes possible. Absolutely. We very much look forward to having you, you know, back in Atlanta and teaching at Emory again. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.